begin a new series uh, that I've called Never Enough. And the subtitle of that series is For People Tired of Guilt-Laden Christianity. Uh, and I'll share more about how I got to this series uh, in the sermon today. But I want to invite you to hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter this time. Jesus says these words. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've just preached through the entire Bible over the last year, and and so I hadn't had to develop out a whole new series for quite some time in that we were kind of meandering through for those 52 weeks. And so even if I didn't know exactly where it was going to go three months ahead of time, I at least knew kind of where we'd be in the Bible. So I was developing out in early December, thought I had a sermon series picked out for this time of the year, and and I made the mistake uh, of talking to my wife about that series and, and this is the problem when your spouse is in the same line of work as you. And so I, so I said, Lord, I want you to hear this series I've got. I'm really excited. I have all the scriptures picked. I've got the weeks laid out. I think it's going to be great. And I told her about this week, this, this series I was going to preach. And, and she said, you can't preach that. And I said, why? And she said, that makes me feel guilty. And she said, and, and, and see, the series I was going to preach was going to be about priority. It was going to be about setting priorities in the new year and, and getting, your, getting your life in order and getting things straight. And she said, the people you're talking to are the people who have their priorities by and large straight. And, and, and they're the ones who are sitting there. And she said, all that's going to do is cause more guilt. And you see, what I was going to do was twist your arm casually through the use of the pulpit and make you feel like you need to do more in, in the new year. So I scrapped the series that I had planned, and decided to preach instead about this idea of guilt. And as I thought and read more about guilt, I realized that I feel guilty a lot of the time, and it motivates a lot of what I do, and I don't really like that feeling. Now hold up. Am I saying that all guilt is bad? I mean, maybe I'm using the words wrong. I'll quote here Brene Brown, who's a sociologist and has come in the last few years to be the definer of emotions in our culture. When she talks about the difference between guilt and shame, she says, I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. On the other hand, she says, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection, she says. So in those definitions, there is a guilt that is good. When we've done something wrong, for instance, like when a child knows that they have broken the rules and their conscience compels them to tell us about it. I personally like it if my child breaks the rules and then comes to tell me that they have done so. Because when they do that, it shows that maybe they're not a sociopath. So that's a pretty good thing. 
Guilt that is good is guilt that moves us towards repentance. It helps us to live differently. We don't sit and wallow in that type of guilt. But when my wife described feeling guilty from my planned sermon series, that's different. She wasn't talking about the shame that Brene Brown was talking about, but this type of guilt I'm talking about can easily lead to shame. Brown would say that the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt says, I did something stupid. And shame says, I am stupid. Those are different things. But here's the problem. We live in a culture that perpetuates a cycle of guilt. This cycle is driven by this idea of never enough. I am never enough. I never have enough time to do all the things I need to do. I am never optimal enough. I am never the pastor and husband and parent and friend and neighbor and son and citizen that I am supposed to be. And I wouldn't say that I have a cycle of shame about that, but it's more like a type of guilt one that keeps me on a hamster wheel that will never actually go anywhere. And I think the cycle of guilt comes from our culture of perfection. Ada Calhoun is an author who in 2020 set out to describe her generation, Generation X, the women's midlife crisis that they were entering and that she was seeing amongst her peers. And her resulting book called Why We Can't Sleep describes this culture of perfection with unbelievable accuracy. In an interview about the book, Calhoun talks about how so many women felt like they have to shine in every area of their lives. She said, in the past, the question was, how nice is your home? Or how good are you at your job? Now it's like, it's like all of those things. So it's, are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Is your house nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? Like it's every single factor in life you have to excel at. End quote. No wonder that Calhoun found this group of Gen X women unable to sleep. I mean, I'm not a Gen X woman, but this litany resonates with me. And I feel like I have to succeed and excel at all of these things too. So work like Calhoun's, this Why We Can't Sleep book, at least helps me feel like I'm not alone. But somewhere along the line, we have picked up this idea as a culture, that we should always be getting closer to perfection, closer to optimal, and that this is somehow humanly achievable. Ada Calhoun talked about the people she interviewed in this way. She said, and as I was interviewing all these women around the country, I heard from them the idea that the idea that they could do anything somehow morphed into a directive that they must do everything and do it all effortlessly. Even a lot of women I talked to who were doing a stressful full-time job and a lot of caregiving, the classic definition of it all, felt like they had failed in some way. Maybe they had both work and family, but they weren't in good physical shape. Their kids weren't getting good grades. They worked all the time, but still couldn't afford a nice vacation. Or they were just very, very tired. But wait, doesn't Jesus ask us to be perfect? That's what I read in the scripture today in Matthew 5. It said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, often talked about Christian perfection. Granted, he was pretty neurotic. But aren't we supposed to be trying to be perfect? 
Well, in this section of Matthew 5, Jesus was talking about love. More specifically, Jesus is talking about that we are called to be the type of people who love our enemies. The Common English Bible, actually, in its translation that I didn't read for you because I wanted you to hear the one about being perfect, it, re- it, it changes the wording of it so that we don't read it with this interpretation that we have. It says, therefore, just as your Heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. In other words, Jesus was not advocating for a be the most efficient human you can possibly be lifestyle. In fact, when we look at Jesus against our culture's definition of perfect, Jesus would be pretty imperfect. Like he was really inefficient a lot of times in the way he went about his life. I mean, he did not produce, he did not get optimal results all of the time. But we often map our culture's understanding onto our Christian faith. And so we think that the guilt that we feel must be given by God. And I'm here to tell you today that it's not all the time. The result that we feel in this perfectionism as a culture is a word called burnout. Now, burnout got some high usage during COVID, but it describes a real part of life for many people in our world. If we feel like we have to be perfect and this perfection is unachievable, which by definition it is, we eventually burn out. In his book, Low Anthropology, which is helping me form a lot of this series, David Zoll writes, burnout describes the emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by prolonged stress. It manifests as restlessness, procrastination, apathy, and low-level persistent unhappiness. To be burned out is to feel like you cannot take on one more task, and there's always one more task. There is always one more task. That's how it feels, and we are never enough for it. Journalist Anne Helen Peterson set out to describe what she was feeling and what her generation was feeling. As a millennial born between 1980 and 2000, Peterson sensed that she was not alone in how she was feeling. So she wrote a piece that went pretty viral called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Peterson writes, for millennials, their domestic work is now supposed to check a never-ending number of aspirational boxes. Outings should be experiences. Food should be healthy and homemade and fun. Bodies should be sculpted. Wrinkles should be minimized. Clothes should be cute and fashionable. Sleep should be regulated. Relationships should be healthy. The news should be read and processed. Kids should be given personal attention and thriving. Millennial parenting is, as a recent New York Times article put it, relentless. And I'm tired just listening to that litany that she labels... And the response as a culture for what we're supposed to do when we're feeling tired or worn down is always these two magic words of self-care. The reality is that self-care as a solution is more of a commodification of something that's really exhausting. Buy this product now and do this workout, then you'll feel like the perfect person you're supposed to be. But it never works like that. Instead, we've just added one more thing to feel like we're failing at. The nagging feeling that comes in the back of our minds when we're facing burnout is this. I have no right to feel this way. Others have it so much worse. So we feel guilty for feeling how we feel. That's the definition of a cycle. And then 
We might use phrases to make ourselves feel even worse about that. Like how my problem that I have is a first world problem. And it's not really a problem that, that other people in the world have to actually worry about. I would venture to bet that many of us, whether we are feeling it right now, or we can resonate where times in our lives where we have, feel, where we have felt burnt out. You feel like you just can't take on one more thing. So, after me describing just how bad this is, what is the good news? Because that's kind of my job. Well, the good news is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus, the same one who asked us to love perfectly just a few chapters before, a few chapters later here says this promise that has really resonated with people. And I think it resonates with us on a special way and even deeper for those who feel the reality of this perfection that leads to burnout. Listen to Jesus again. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. The Pharisees, who Jesus often rails against, right? They had a yoke of teaching that they encouraged people to take on. Their teaching took on authority, but it was always add-ons to the law. It wasn't just the law. It was that you also had to do these things in addition, in order to be holy, in order to be righteous. It was more sets of rules to know and always more things to potentially break and fail at. Their yoke felt particularly heavy. Many of us are carrying heavy loads today particularly as we focus on this guilt of never being enough. We feel the tyranny of perfection and the constant and incessant scrutiny of the mirror. I encourage you today to look into that mirror and see yourself. Typically, when we look at the mirror, the first thing we do in our human nature is to see the imperfections, the things that we don't like, the ways in which we aren't measuring up, how you're never enough. Instead, I invite you to look in the mirror, whether literally or figuratively, and hear Jesus' words again. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. Friends, I can't let go of the heavy load for you. It's hard enough for me to do that in my own life. But I can point you to the one who offers a lighter load and an easy yoke. And maybe over the next few weeks, we together can learn how to trust his word over and above our cultures. Maybe you will see that in the eyes of Jesus, you are enough, just as you are. Amen.